0: I like running less and less. Um, I don't think I'm alone. I didn't even like running when I could run. We'll be in 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 18. And one thing we're going to talk about is being assured before God that we can have a clean conscience before God. And that's something that's unique about human beings As God's put a conscience in us, this inner uh, knowledge and inborn sense of right and wrong. Uh, without being taught, we have this sense of justice and injustice and personal accountability and and we sometimes our conscience will prompt us to do things we don't feel like doing we really don't want to do but we feel we just know that it's the right thing to do it's uh, like the inner court of a person that when we listen to it, it will direct us in the right way according to god's ways and um, I remember working in insulation and And when you're doing concealed work, it's easy to go halfway because not everyone is going to be seeing it. And I had this foreman who would always say, you go, well, how am I going to get to that? How am I going to cover that pipe 100%? And he said, well, let your conscience be your guide. That was something he just said again and again. Like, do the best you can. You know what's right. And uh, let your conscience be your guide. And that's the way that he always said, uh, and it just stuck with me that, um, I could know when I was cutting a corner, when I could do better than, ah, uh, you know, I could shrug it off and, and not try hard, but the conscience would say that's not the right way to do it. Uh, I'm sure you've have, you've all said something or did something you later regretted. That's the conscience at work. We're not always honest, but the conscience always gives us that honest assessment of a situation. And for some, it's very inconvenient. They see the conscience as a bit of a, you know, a killjoy that gets in the way of my fun and something best to be ignored. Um, some people try to justify themselves or ignore what the conscience is saying, perhaps even deadening it with activities or or trying to compensate it by doing good. I did the wrong thing, so if I do the right thing, maybe I'll feel better. Uh, but the only way to have a clean conscience is to be born again, to be filled with the Holy Spirit and then to walk in God's ways. And uh, questions for your conscience to answer this morning. Do you know that you're a child of God? Do you know that the Holy Spirit lives within you? Do you worry about whether you're heading to heaven or hell? Do you have assurance that you are, you have been saved by the blood of Jesus? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us that inner witness of the conscience and, and for your spirit that really transcends anything of our flesh because you are God, you are holy, you do not change, you're not fickle like us. And Lord, I'm struck by my complete inability to communicate your truth, my uh, powerlessness to change myself or anyone else. And uh, Lord, unless you do the work, we labor in vain. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak to hearts this morning, that you would minister as only you can, that you would move in our midst and it would be a genuine move of your spirit, not anything of the flesh, Lord, not anything of human wisdom, but your power so that you might be glorified and we might be changed and glorify you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 18, it says, "'My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things.'" Through this passage, John has said, we know we're God's children because we love the brethren. That if we say we love God, but we hate our brother, then the love of God really isn't in us. We're deceived. And the love of God is more than feelings or words, but in deed and truth. There's actual practical uh, activity and action we take because we love someone. We do something. It's not passive, it's active. God's love is active towards us, isn't it? When Jesus really epitomized, when he came and he died on the cross for our sins, he shed his blood so that we could know God, be forgiven, and live with him forever. And 1 Corinthians 13, it has a really good working description of what God's love looks like, where it's patient and kind, without envy, without boasting, without thinking of itself. It's not proud. It's not rude. It doesn't look for its own way. It's not easily angered. It doesn't keep track of how many bad things have been done against you. Uh, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. It does not fail. It cannot fail. God's love endures forever. So God's love is, is phenomenal. It's amazing. And God's love, we first taste of it when we're born again. God comes in and, and he ministers to our heart his love, and then we are able to walk in his love through the Holy Spirit. Now, in that description, notice that the love there, it focuses on my attitude. It focuses on how I am on the inside. You know, boasting and arrogance and not keeping track of wrongs. That's all mental. That's all affections. That's in my heart, not the kind of So it doesn't start on the outside. We talked about the five love languages last week from the book, Uh, whether it's gifts or acts of service or words of affirmation, quality, time. These are outward expressions of love, but the true expression of love, the fundamental one, is inside me because God's love has changed me. So if we are born again, God's love will be manifested within us and be expressed towards others. So let's follow the logic again. We know we're God's children because His love is expressed in and through our lives. Because we love in word and deed, our hearts or our conscience is assured before Him. We can have confidence to come before God because we know we are His. He is our Father and we are His children. And I like that it says, um, God knows more than our heart. God is bigger than your conscience. He knows more than what your conscience knows. Satan is happy to condemn us for our faults. He loves to accuse us. And we can punish ourselves for our failure. We can beat ourselves up about our shortcomings. But know the same spirit that convicts us of sin, he is able to um, comfort us in the consolation given by God. In Romans 7 and 8, Paul lamented his inability to do the things that he saw as right. He wanted to do the right thing, but he always he didn't always do the right thing. And then there were things he knew that were wrong, but he sometimes did those things. And he's like, ah, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, it was through Jesus that he would be delivered. And then he concludes in the next chapter, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So when you're walking according to the Spirit, there's no condemnation because we're walking in the Spirit. As long as we live in the body, there will be struggles, right? We will struggle with doing the right thing, with doing the wrong thing. But uh, the Holy Spirit will give us a clean conscience and clean conscience is more sensitive to, to sin. It's kind of like, If you had a bright white outfit, and I'm just thinking like disco jumpsuit, I don't know why, but if you have a really white suit of clothes, a little mark on it is going to be very obvious. And when you have a clean conscience before God, a little thing that happens inside your mind or inside your heart, you're going to be sensitive to, you're going to be aware of, whereas before, your conscience resembled like brown rug that all the stains are kind of blending together and you're not really sure what's what. You had a conscience. You could tell if the dog had been there, right? A really big thing, but not these little things that God's able to pinpoint, say, look, this attitude that you have is wrong. You have this problem. We're able to see that now in a new way. It's like magnified. Matthew Henry, he writes, if our conscience acquits us, God does too. Then we have assurance that he accepts us now and will acquit us in the day of account. Let conscience, therefore, be heard, be well informed and diligently attended to. So if our conscience acquits us, if we feel, uh, if we recognize that in light of God's word, God's word is true and we can walk in light of that, we can have assurance before God. It is possible, though a clean conscience is a great tool, uh, a conscience can condemn us when it has no basis for doing so. We can feel condemned when we are clean. We can beat ourselves up about something when we've been vindicated through Jesus Christ on the cross. We've been pardoned of that thing that we still are upset about that we have failed. When a judgment of a case in court is not deemed satisfactory by the defendant or the prosecution, it can be appealed to a higher court. Now, if we feel condemnation after truly repenting, we can take it to the highest court, and that's of God's grace. And he will rule in our favor. If we have repented, if we are walking in the Spirit, we don't need to feel condemned anymore by our conscience. We can have assurance before God because of what his word says and because of God's promises to us. It's kind of like Satan's like, he loves to shout or say something like, you know, he deserves punishment to the full extent of the law, and God's like, overruled, You know, sit down. You have no basis for that condemnation anymore. And so we can have assurance before God and confidence because 1 John 1, 9, Early on in this book, it said, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So all our sin can be cleansed. There's nothing that we need to uh, feel condemned over. Isn't God's love and forgiveness amazing? That he chooses to forgive us. He wants to forgive Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. From a very young age, we learn there are favorable and unfavorable moments to ask our parents for a favor. Have you figured that out? You're like, oh, I knew that when I was six you know, or two. You you might weigh which parent would be more apt to answer your question in the way you want, right? So you kind of pick and choose. You take your shots carefully. And this is a child, you could do this. If we've been naughty or we notice our parents are on edge, that's not really a good time to make a, a question. Maybe a little question, but not a big ask, right? So you weigh, how big is my request? And then you figure out what's the right time to make this request because you don't want to get shot down. You want your request to be answered. And we see this, this planning or I guess you could say scheming in the mind of the prodigal son where he, he comes to his senses and he's like, you know, I got to go home. I want to go be reconciled to my dad. See, he knew he had done wrong. He knew he had shamefully wasted his father's goods. And that it was an embarrassment. And he didn't expect a royal welcome when he came back. And so he's saying, well, if I ask to just be a servant, not a son, maybe my dad will say yes. Maybe he'll take me back into the house again. I can't ask him to be a son. That's too big. I mean, I can't. He had a guilty conscience, this guy. He realized that he could not rightfully come back and ask to even be treated as a son. And so he said, well, if I just beg to be a servant, maybe he'll say yes to that. Since Jesus has taken away our condemnation, he's forgiven us, he's accepted us into the beloved, we can have confidence in God to approach him on any subject at any time, knowing that he will hear us and he will answer us. Sin brings us under condemnation but faith in God brings confidence in him see it's not confidence in my relation to him it's or confidence in my performance because a lot of times we want to feel confident in our performance before we'll ask God for something feel like we're justified to ask God because well I haven't really been living up to the standard that I should that's a guilty conscience we don't have to have that before God When our conscience is clear, we can have great confidence before God because we know he's our father. We know he loves us. We know he will hear us. Now, if you've been a good boy or a good girl, um, do you think your parents will be more or less apt to listen and heed your request? Probably more apt, right? You did a good job. They're going to be more favorable towards you. Now, verse 22, it connects our behavior with God's response. It says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Since the Holy Spirit lives in us as Christians, he will guide us to ask thing, ask for things that are pleasing in God's sight, that are in alignment with his will. Who here has seen the, the 1971 Willow, Willy Wonka And the chocolate factory. Gene Wilder. Yes. Many of us have seen that. I was like, I need to see that movie again. It's been a while. There was this girl named Veruca Salt, right? She's very demanding. She wants a glass elevator. She wants an Oompa Loompa. She wants everything. You know, she wants a golden ticket and even a golden goose. Like she's just like so demanding. And her dad's kind of like, Oh, my princess and trying to do everything to please her. And whatever she says, she gets at great expense while sparing no expense. Now, God is not like this obliging, flattering Father who panders to our selfishness. He is not going to give us things that will destroy us. He's not a way to get whatever we want. But when we're born again, our desires will begin to align with His because His Spirit lives within us now. So we've changed. Our appetites have changed. Our desires are changing. And we want what He wants because He's our Father and we love Him and we want to please Him. It means we can be confident in God's positive response when we pray according to His will because He is in no way obliged to meet our demands. Like, God, I did the right thing. Now you need to come through. That's not what this verse is saying. If we are refusing to love one another, if we're walking in sin, we should not expect to receive anything from him. Even when we're doing the right thing, we cannot demand things of him because all is of grace. God will, but we, he, we have his promises here. We can be bold with requests, as it says in 1 John chapter 5, that we can have great confidence in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So God's listening. He's ready to answer. So the emphasis of 1 John 3, 22, it's the connection between confidence in our requests according to God's will because we're doing his will. That's the key. Moving on in verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. John clarifies what God's commandment is. He says that we should believe on Jesus Christ and love one another. So these two things are actually one. Faith and love are connected with one another because all who truly believe on Jesus Christ will love others. They're inseparable. Because you can't say, I love others, or or, I believe in Christ, but I don't love others. It doesn't work. They must go together. Because we trust God, we love one another. And love for others is a primary way that we can know that the Spirit of God lives within us. That we have a love for people that does not exist in me naturally. Have you guys noticed that? Have you ever been surprised that... You just know that the way you are feeling towards someone or the things you want to do for someone, that doesn't come from you. It comes from God. Because that goodness doesn't originate in us. Some say that speaking in tongues is proof of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It's one gift of many that God gives. But tongues are also a common practice in a cult circles and non-christian groups it's truly love from a pure heart towards others indeed and in truth that proves you're filled with the Holy Spirit not giftedness if you sh- there's a lot of people who are gifted but if you don't have the fruit of your spirit in your life you will eventually be a disgrace you must keep being fruitful because the gifts and calling of God are without repentance he's not going to wrench away a gift that he's given you if you want to know that the Spirit lives within you, it will be because you love others indeed and in truth. Of course, the Spirit will manifest Himself through tongues, interpretation, healings, uh, various miraculous things. But it's love from a pure heart. Do we value that as much? Sometimes we, we want the giftedness, but are we willing to love like Jesus does? And, and take as much joy in us, the fact that I can love somebody who hates me, that I can love someone who has been my enemy as the primary evidence of the Holy Spirit within me, not because I can exercise a gift on a whim, but because God's love is in me. I know I'm a child of God. I know I have confidence before God. That is, may we value God's love like that, not just for the power, Because people want the power. People outside the church want power. Do you want the power to love others as Jesus loves you? That's what he gives to all of his children. Some people are gifted in one area, some people are gifted in another. But all the fruit of the Spirit is love, right? So if the Spirit lives within you, you will love. Now, abiding there... It says, um, in verse 24, now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We don't often use the word abiding. I can't remember the last time I heard someone say that on the news or, you know, in color commentating in the NRL. Oh, yeah, he was abiding. Uh, You just don't hear that. Abiding. But he spells it out, and so in a spiritual sense, abiding seems rather abstract or ambiguous, but he spells it out concretely for us literal thinkers here. It says, he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. So when I keep God's commandments to love one another as he loves me, I'm abiding in him and he is also abiding in me. You can't have one without the other. If he's abiding in me, and then I will, I am enabled to keep his commands. And when I'm keeping his commands, then it's proof that he's abiding in me. See how that goes together? True belief, it's indicated by trust. It's accompanied by his peace and assurance. Do you know, do you have evidence that the Holy Spirit lives within you? Because you love indeed and in truth. Not just to the people that you like, but to everyone. It's a challenge because we can think we're walking in love one day, but in reality, we just like somebody. But may the Lord show us that we really have His love, and it's Him, it's nothing of us. Jesus compares the moving of the Holy Spirit to the wind that's blowing the trees. And we had quite a, a gusty day yesterday. Uh, we were out, what was it, Eroka way? You know, the, the wind was whipping around and you could hear it. You could see the trees moving. Now, I don't know where that wind came from. There's no wind generator over to the side that's mechanically stirring up this gale. And I don't know where it stops. Like... This gust of wind, where does it just peter out and finish? Or does it keep going and get stronger? Or does it just go up? Does it hit a wall and stop? I don't know. So Jesus says, you know, the movement of the Spirit is a lot like wind. You can't see it. You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. But you know that tree is not moving by itself. Something, that wind that you're hearing, it's it's moving it. There is an, an outward show of wind's force and in the same way the Holy Spirit when he comes inside someone's life there will be outer proof of that inner work that's happened there will be love evidence on the outside of your life indeed and in truth that is visible he's working he's doing the work so that inner transformation will have external and obvious evidence People will choose to put off sin and to have a hunger for the word of God, to do the things that please God. Uh, Conviction and, and choices to change. It's written in Romans 8, verse 8 and 9. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But if you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So having the Holy Spirit within us is really important because we cannot be saved unless we're regenerated. We can't be regenerated unless the Holy Spirit's within us. And the Holy Spirit, if he's inside you, there will be evidence in your life to that end, that you love one another as he loves us. I like that it says the Spirit of God dwells within you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So you see the Spirit of God. Spirit of Christ. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God, and he dwells within us. Without the Holy Spirit's help, we cannot love, can we? We cannot do the first thing that God tells us to do. But when the Holy Spirit is in us, we are enabled to do all that he tells us to do. He says, without me, you can do nothing. But with him, we can do all things through Jesus. So now, uh, starting the next chapter... 1 John 4, starting in verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Genuine believers have the Holy Spirit within them. There's only one Holy Spirit. There's a lot of unclean spirits in the world. There's many that will hype the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. All of His power is supernatural. But it's true that not everything spiritual is good or godly. There's a lot of spirits out there, and they can be masquerading as angels of light when they are darkness and confusion and deceptive. And many have had spiritual experiences which are not of God. Let's say they've been physically healed, or they they had hands laid on them and they spoke in tongues, but suddenly lost the peace of God, lost all assurance of God, and then that spiritual experience should be t- questioned. It should be tested according to the word. If you have this spiritual experience, and yet you have no peace with God, is it an experience with the spirit of God or another spirit? Satan, the Bible says, can appear as an angel of light. So he can look very alluring, very holy, but he's anything but. God does heal, God does gift to speak in tongues and interpret, but we as believers were called to test the spirits to see if they come from God. So we have the Spirit of God, therefore our deeds should be aligned with the Word of God. And because we all have the same Spirit, we can be united with one another in practice and in belief. And the true test is not how I feel about something or the effectiveness of something, the apparent effectiveness, but the fact that, so it's like, oh, I got healed, so it's of God. Well, is it of God? We must test that. What's the true test? The Word of God. Because the Holy Spirit inspired the Word, and He's not going to do or say something that's in violation of what He said. If you could turn in your Bibles to John 16, 12 through 15, Jesus described the working of the Holy Spirit to his disciples before his death and resurrection. We don't need to be a bit on edge or worried when we talk about the Holy Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit or gifts of the Spirit. Any more than you would be afraid of a gentle breeze um, moving your hair. You know, it's nothing to fear. He is, God is, He is moving, He is working. And He does many things that we desperately need. So, John 16, verse 12 I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said, he will take of mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit is not going to glorify or magnify his own office. He will glorify Jesus Christ even as Jesus Christ did not come to glorify himself, but to glorify the Father. Jesus said this after saying that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment, that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. And the scripture alone supplies the test of an authentic move of the Spirit of God. He gives us the ability to discern truth from error, the Holy Spirit is able to lead us in the right way, to have understanding of what God is saying and what it means in my life, what it looks like. It says that the Holy Spirit, he speaks on Christ's authority and will tell a future event. So he also tells us prophetically things. So again, just to reiterate, the scripture is the the only place that supplies that true test of whether something is from God or not. So the fact that someone was healed when they went to an event, uh, they had this feeling or a euphoria, or they experienced a miracle seen or done, it does not mean necessarily the Spirit doing them is the Spirit of God. So we're called to test the spirits. And You may say, well, how do you test a spirit? That seems kind of weird. Well, we have an example of it in 1 Corinthians 14, 29 through 32. In the church in Corinth, there were opportunities for people to uh, share a tongue and interpretation, a prophetic word, a psalm, a hymn. So 1 Corinthians 14.29, if you want to turn there, we'll read of an example of how the spirits are tested 1 Corinthians 14, 29 says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. I like that. All can prophesy one by one. God has the capacity to gift everyone to express a spiritual gift, but let them speak one at a time. Not everyone shouting over one another or talking all at the same time, but one at a time. And then it says, and let the others judge. So everyone else in the congregation is hearing this word that's apparently from God, and they are weighing it against what? Against God's word. You guys have seen those scales where you have like a kilo iron weight on one side and it's like this, it's heavy. And then you put food or whatever you want to sell and you bring it so it's even. And if it's even, it's equal, right? So there's an, there's a balance there. There's an equality between the weight and the goods. Well, it's the same thing with when a word of prophecy is given. A word of prophecy is given, God's word is already on the one side of the scale, And you put that prophecy on the other side. And if it balances out perfectly, then you're like, that's a word from the Lord. It may be a hard word to hear, but it's in keeping with the tone and the other scriptures. But if it's heavier than God's word or it's lighter than God's word and it doesn't match up at all, there's parts of of, uh, that don't correlate, then we can know that word's not from God. And that was the role of everyone that was in the church was to hear the word being spoken, and like the people of Berea, search the scriptures to see if it's true. Weigh it against the word of God. Not my experience, but the word of God. That's the true test. That's the proper balance. So the way we speak, remember it says the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. We can't say, oh, well, the spirit of God came over me, and so we all had to talk at the same time. Um, not in the case in the Corinthian church. Clearly, they had control to speak when they wanted to, because he said, let them speak in, in order, or at a time, and then let the others judge. And so you go, well, that's a good word from the Lord. And the Holy Spirit will provide through his word evidence. So we're not to be gullible. We hear something, uh, and we just say, oh, that, that guy seems solid, so it must be true. We need to weigh it against the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.20-22, it says, Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. What does that mean? We can despise prophecies. We don't like someone speaking on God's authority. We feel uncomfortable with that, naturally. But he says, don't despise prophecies. God gives prophecy for us to be, in the previous passage, encouraged and taught. So it's something to encourage us. It's something to teach us. But we should test it. Test all things. So whether it's a prophecy or whatever, let's test it against the word. Is it being said in, in line with God's word? And is it being done in line with God's word? So... I'm not the authority of this. It's God's word that gives us the truth. New revelations are not going to oppose what God has already said. Um, And if someone makes a claim, let's say about a future event, see if it comes true. If it doesn't come true, well then, you're not to fear that anymore. I would be cautious of those who apply their own spin on things and their own uh, special... Revelations that, that oppose other scriptures. There's only one Holy Spirit and he doesn't oppose himself. So 1 John 4 verse 2. And he gives us another test here. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Christ, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming and is already now in the world. In John's day, there was a prevalent heresy called Gnosticism. It was a belief that anything physical was evil and anything spiritual is good. So you can see that they were led into many errors by that uh, doctrine. And the Bible, it always presents a true picture of Jesus. And anything that deviates from that, either denying his humanity... Or denying his deity is a problem. It's something to be seen as error, to be avoided. So if we deny the deity of Christ, then he's a liar. He's not the son of God. He can't be our savior. And if we deny his humanity, then his blood is not effectual to save us of our sin. We must have both divinity and humanity in Jesus fully. Fully God, fully man. If he is not, then he can't be our savior. There is no gospel unless we have the true Jesus. Paul said very emphatically in Galatians 1, 8, 9, he says, But if even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. So, very bold. And very clear. Now John warns the spirit of Antichrist. He's already in the world. When John wrote this. And the word anti means against. Or instead of. So something that's of the spirit of Antichrist. Will oppose what Jesus has said. It will oppose the word of God. And it will provide a substitute. Instead of the word of God. Uh, a lesser I guess, very powerless Christ, not a Christ at all. And this is a common denominator of all cults. And uh, I guess the Christian view of a cult, because it's widely defined, it would be one that denies the true nature of Jesus Christ, that that takes away from the word of God, that adds to the word of God, uh, revises it. And really, even when you have believed these things and practiced them, you're as lost and condemned to hell as ever. It cannot save you. There are many who claim to know the truth. There were many in John's day who claimed to speak for God, but they were not of God. And he says, you'll know by their fruits. You will know because they will be in agreement with the word of God. And we shouldn't be smug in self-righteousness because, you know, we've got it right. and We're doing the right thing. The fact that he's writing this to Christians that were genuine, as we've established, means that there was a danger that they too could be deceived if they didn't test the spirits if they didn't value the word of God. So let's not be deceived and led astray. 1 John 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us, he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John affirmed his readers, the people to whom he penned this letter, they were of God. They had overcome these lying spirits because God who was in them, the Holy Spirit, was greater than any amount of liars. Jesus Christ has overcome. Now, if you heard that there was a deadly outbreak of a disease, fatal, incurable, in your city, you would be right to be concerned about that. You know, sometimes we get these notes like, oh, there's a case of mumps over here, or uh, measles. Have you been inoculated? Are you, are you uh, have all your shots, had all your shots? Um, but what if there was this outbreak, and you had a blood test done, and you found that you had an immunity to the disease? And you could administer a cure to others. It would change your perspective, wouldn't it? Because you wouldn't have to be afraid of contracting that virus anymore because you have the immunity. You wouldn't have the fear of infection. You could go places where others couldn't without fear. And in the same way, there's a lot of lies and deceit in this world, but God has given us his spirit and we can go into a dark world and bring the light there without being corrupted ourselves because we have the word of God. We have his cure. We have his truth. We have an immunity to every deception that Satan would throw at us. But there is a major difference between my body's immunity to disease and the Christian's resistance to the lies of Satan. Now, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact that there's a lot of disease in the world, like You know, influenza A and B, they've been going around big time. Like, I know that exists, but I have no idea how my white blood cells actually are able to target a dangerous virus or bacteria that I can't see and neutralize it. Like, that's not a conscious choice. We're like, all right, be on guard for influenza A and B. If you breathe it, if you touch it, that's what you're going to target, white blood cells. Go. You know, huddle, break. And everyone, you know, we're all doing it. Doesn't work that way, right? I have, I don't know. I can't see them. I, I have no consciousness of, like, you could think, oh yeah, I, I ate that food, so I got sick. All right, fine. But can you tell who you got the cold from? Really? We can guess. Like, Chris sneezed on me. Yeah. Yeah. I actually saw, it. I it was, uh, I can't go there. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Now, see, when it comes to spiritual things, however, I need to be consciously bringing that claim against the word of God. It's like the Holy Spirit is working in me to make me alert of that thing, of that, that claim or that prophecy, and to weigh it against Scripture. It's a conscious choice. If I choose to be passive and I don't test the spirits, I let all sorts of uh, potential disease in or uh, error into my life. So I have to test the spirits. I need to be faithful to do that. Discernment is not passive. I can't be passive about discerning truth from error. I have to be active in it. Just like my body's active inside without my knowledge, this requires our knowledge and God will give you that knowledge to discern what his will is, according to his word. Now, um, in addition to the spirit of Antichrist opposing Christ's nature, another characteristic of this Antichrist is a wide appeal to the world and worldly people. So the offers of these false prophets, they are going to appeal to worldly folks. People love the idea of being physically healed, right? If you're sick, who wouldn't want to be healed? Everyone wants to be healed. They, they like the idea of having monetary wealth, of having security and prosperity. They like the idea of heaven. They like power and authority. When you talk about, you know, you have the power now to, to claim this and to do that. That appeals to people. Even if it's community and helping one another and love, that has an appeal, right? So a lot of these concepts we see in the church, but they also appeal to the world. But he says, those who are of the world speak as the world, and the world listens. The world hears them. The world gives them an audience. The world's attracted to them. The popular sentiment today seems to be tolerance and inclusion, and not to impose our beliefs on others, or or to coexist. These are very popular, attractive things to the world at the moment, a world that's trying to put us into its mold instead of us being a light in a dark world. What does the world, is it attractive to the world to deny yourself, take up a cross, and follow Jesus in obedience to him? The world cannot stand the idea of submission, can it? It refuses that entirely. It refuses the idea that the word of God is absolute truth from God that we need to hear and obey. The world's not interested in that. When a man follows Jesus, when a woman chooses, when a a child chooses to follow God, it means allegiance to God above family, above friends, even above yourself that you deny yourself and choose to obey God according to his word. So with his apostolic authority from God, John calls out the fakers. And he says, those who refuse to listen to us, those who refuse to hear God's word, they're not of us. If you're of us, you'll listen to us. You'll heed what we have to say. And he's talking about the things that he's writing in the word of God. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. And he's not talking about hearing like I heard you talk, but he's actually hearing it, believing it, and heeding it, putting it into practice, outward evidence of faith. So the man who heeds God's word is of God. Those who reject the word of God are not of God. Though There are many in the church even who would relegate God's word to a book of poetry or Guidelines or tips for life, like this will kind of help you and you can t- take a little bit and you know, the rest of it's outdated and all that. We've come a long way since then. You know, we can just put it all aside as nothing. Those have been seduced by the spirit of error, the spirit of antichrist that is already in the world. The bottom line, God's people hear his word. So can you, with a clear conscience, say you Hear God's word. You are of God because you take the Bible to heart and you're seeking to practice it and to honor him. Last thing. Paul, he was encouraging Timothy to use the gift God gave him. He said, stir up the gift God's given you. And in 2 Timothy 1.7, he says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. When you hear that, a spirit of power, of love, and a sound mind, does that weigh, does that equate with your life at the moment? Because you can be a child of God where those things are not being exhibited because of choices or deceptions. And it also may not be exhibited because you haven't heeded God's word. You haven't been born again yet. And so I urge you to consider, does your conscience condemn you or are, do you have assurance before God that you are God's? You've heard Him and He's hearing you and you have a, you have a, a closeness and a relationship. So present yourself before Him today and may He give you the insight you need to walk uprightly. May God's love be manifested in and through our lives. Then we know we're of God because His Spirit dwells in us and we love brethren. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and for the power of it. Lord, use your scripture to minister to our hearts. We ask that you would uh, move upon us, that we would experience your assurance. We would know your presence, that you would be glorified in our lives. And I thank you, Lord, that you do give us your word so we can tell truth from error, that we don't have to be deceived in this life. Uh, And help us to test the spirits to see whether they are of God or not. And Lord, may we be those who are obedient to your word, who grow in grace, and who honor and glorify you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.